The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you'll want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Welcome to New Reflections. Thanks for joining us. This week we have a particularly interesting show. The show is called Transgender Surgery, Not So Quick Change Artists. And we're going to be speaking with a number of experts in the world of transgender and transsexual people and the process uh, of going through surgery to change your gender identity. We're going to be speaking with a couple of doctors that perform the surgery and we'll have a patient who will be calling in later to discuss her experience with the transition. But to start the show, we're going to be speaking with Lisette Lahana, who's a social worker who specializes in counseling uh, patients who are considering the surgery and, and just transgender patients in general. And we'll learn a lot about the transgender lifestyle and the, uh, the issues that come along with it. In doing my research for the show, I saw it was estimated up to 1% of the population of the United States may be uh, living as transsexual or transgender. It may be more prevalent than anyone understands or anyone realizes because this is often something someone lives in, with in secrecy. This is something that someone will may perhaps go through the majority of their life never revealing to too many people, if anyone, their true gender identity because they're living with uh, they're, li- they're living in a life that is portrayed in, in the opposite gender identity from which they were born. Let me introduce Dr. Lisette Lahana. I'm sorry, <laughs> Lisette Lahana, who is a social worker uh, and specializes in counseling transgender and transsexual patients. Hi, Lisette? thanks for having me. Great, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you giving your morning to speak to us. Sure. Tell me about the prevalence of, of transsexuals and transgender people in the United States. Is, it, is that an accurate number, do you think? Approximately 1% of the population? It sounds about accurate, but actually I've heard higher numbers, like up to 5%, because a lot of transgender people, it's very difficult to get good numbers because it's such a stigmatized um, group of people, especially for people who cross-dress in secret. So there's many, many people who we're never going to see in our offices because there's so much shame associated with being transgender. Well, it certainly must be difficult considering the social norms, if you will, of what people expect from people that are born male or female. It certainly is by far the majority of people living within their born genders. But what, when does someone, do you think, first become aware? Hmm. Good question. It really depends on the person. I have a lot of patients who are aware um, of 
feeling different or not feeling in the right body or feeling like their gender is not right as early as many people say as early as I can remember age three, four, remembering fights with their parents if their parent wants them to wear a dress and they're, um, they were born female, I mean male, um, fighting and fighting or wanting to be called a different name, even in early childhood. Um, and then I have other clients where it's an evolving identity and they may start wearing clothing of the other gender and little by little over time they learn that they are more comfortable in the gender role of um, the other gender. And so then they start making steps some later in life. I see a lot of people in their 40s, 50s, 60s who decide to make a gender transition, and that's often after many, many years um, being frustrated or miserable in the gender they were born with. And so even those older patients that you see, you think it's a pretty consistent story that their feelings began as a child. Uh, not everybody. There's, there's people who start, yes, as early as um, early childhood, adolescence, and then some people um, develop that later in life um, where they might have had some cross-dressing as a teenager and then may cross-dress for a while and then over time decide they want to make a gender transition. But it's not, very, it's not always cut and dry. Um, it really depends on each person's life story. And certainly there are some people who are um, uh, evolutionary transsexuals where over time that identity evolves. Well, I was intrigued, as I saw in doing the research for the show, that there was a story done on ABC about a young boy. Uh, the young boy was, I think, at the age of three or four and began having transsexual preferences for clothing and, and play toys, etc., and actually ended up entering kindergarten as a girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's usually done when if a child is expressing very, very strong preference for the other gender, and usually they need to have both parents, if they're two parents, on board with that because there are a lot of pressures for kids, um, uh, especially, you know, if they're living in a community where there's rejection or if it's a community that's not really open. um, It can be a really difficult decision, and that's a really rare thing, I think, for a child to transition that early. Um, well, I thought it was certainly unique. Uh, you didn't see too many stories about that, but it was, you know, it, it's, it's exceptionally accepting parents and understanding parents to take the child to therapy and to accept the idea that, hey, well, this is how our, what we thought was our son wants to behave. The story was actually talking about a therapist once showing this young child, whose name I believe was Jazz, uh, showing Jazz two dolls and saying, a male doll and a female doll, and saying, which of these is you? And Jazz answered, well, that's me now, pointing to the, the male doll, and then he pointed to the female doll and said, that's what I want to be. Yeah, there's definitely children, many, many children, who can say who they are at a very early age, and Jazz was very lucky to have parents <clears throat> who, were so, who were so loving and accepting. Um, and I think it's important for, for listeners to know that for those children, usually there aren't any physical changes that happen, or even at that early age before, you know, 9 or 10, there aren't any hormonal changes that are, that are made. Um, this is really just a social transition. And what's nice about that is it's fully reversible, so that if a child, as they develop, feel like they may, you know, didn't feel right to be living in the opposite gender role, there's no harm done. I mean, certainly there's social ramifications for transitioning back at, at an early age, but um, really um, 
we become much more, you know, it's m- much more careful and having to do a lot of evaluation and history taking before starting with hormones. Um, for for younger kids, bef- there are puberty blockers, so so often parents and doctors and therapists can make the decision to put a child on blockers so that their body doesn't go into puberty and they have time to kind of work through uh, what gender they want to live as. And that can give us, um, that can really help in terms of decreasing depression and even suicidality in teenagers. Um, you know, that, this, this whole discussion of children really brings to mind the typical question that comes up when you're discussing anything that's apart from what is sociologically the norm, if you will. Uh, and, and that is nature versus nurture. You know, when you're looking at a child that hasn't really had the opportunity to be socialized and to be indoctrinated with the typical thoughts and feelings that society says uh, a man or woman, a boy or girl should have, that really argues towards nature. And then, of course, there are people that make their decisions later in life and begin thinking about their feelings later in life. And perhaps that's more nurture. But in, in looking at this issue, I came across this idea of gender identity disorder. And that, that seems to imply that there's something wrong or there's something abnormal about discovering this about yourself. And I think that the nature argument argues against that. What are your feelings about that title, gender identity disorder? Wow, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, so there's a lot of debate in the community around what it means to be seen as having a disorder. And really, I like to look at gender as a form of human diversity, just like any other thing that is, is you know, a variance, a human variance. And um, I used to believe that gender could be socially constructed. I was a women's studies uh, major in college, and I really felt like, you know, men don't cry because they're told, don't be a sissy, don't cry. And as I've been getting, as I've been more involved in this field over the past 12 years, I really believe that there is such a thing as brain sex, that people who are transgender, transsexual, really, you know, there are there are changes that we may not be able to see that happen even in utero that may cause a person to really have their gender um, be different than their body. And they may know internally exactly what their gender is, and society places all these expectations upon them as when they're born, the moment they're born, um, around what it means to be a boy or a girl. And so for those um, children, it's extremely painful because they're, in their internal experience is quite different than their body. And, you know, certainly there is in that nature versus nurture debate. Um, in twin studies, when there's identical twins, there is not 100% correspondence. Um, so if one twin is transsexual, we don't always, you know, the other twin may not necessarily have gender issues. So that does suggest there's some nurture piece. Well, but that's, that's interesting, though. I mean, it, it, though identical, there's still some question as to whether or not there could still be some natural differences. Uh, well, let's, let's move on a little bit into the surgery processes. I'm about to introduce a, a couple of our uh, the doctors that specialize in this type of surgery. When you have a patient that has decided, perhaps even been living uh, as the opposite sex from their, their birth gender, for a while, and they decide, you know, I really want to complete this transformation. What is the, the counseling process that you feel is necessary before sending someone to see a surgeon? Mm-hmm. Well, so um, there's a, many different kinds of surgeries people can consider. So there's chest reconstructive surgeries for female to male transsexuals, um, 
facial feminization, and then there's, there are other types of surgeries, including genital surgeries uh, or gender confirmation surgeries. So, um, so depending on what kind of surgery someone wants, you know, I'll make different recommendations. But usually um, I follow uh, recommendations based on the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, um, and so they have recommenda- recommended guidelines um, for therapists and surgeons around um, expectations about what somebody um, kind of should do, should accomplish in the course of psychotherapy or in their lived life. So usually before a, a genital surgery, somebody should uh, be on hormones for 12 months and be having a real-life experience. So for 12 months, really making the attempt to live and, and experience what it means to be um, a woman in society or a man in society um, before having genital surgery. Sometimes people, in order to have that experience of living as a woman or a man, may need other, may either need to be, some need facial feminization surgery if that person is a male to female transsexual because they may not fully be read as a female because of uh, physical characteristics. Um, so that real life experience can be really difficult for people if they don't fully, if they aren't fully read as female, if they're a male to female transsexual. So but certainly, certainly very different experiences, whether you're talking about genital surgery versus things like facial feminization. Right. Facial feminization really is a decision that a patient would make with their plastic surgeon, and there is no need for a letter or evaluation from a gender specialist. But certainly it's helpful to talk to a therapist to talk about the ramifications um, with family members, with work, children. Um, So it's always helpful to talk to a therapist if um, someone is feeling like there are going to be complications in their everyday life, and especially if they're not yet out to family, friends, or at work. So um, therapy is a really important part of their process. But sometimes I see people who are already living full-time in their preferred gender role. And for that patient, there may be different recommendations. Um, the WPATH guidelines are only recommendations. They're not hard and fast rules. So depending Sure, on of course. Yeah. of course. And I imagine surgeons have different requirements, if, if any, of people coming to have this type of surgery, whether it's facial feminization or uh, male-to-female chest surgery or female-to-male chest surgery, for that matter, or any, uh, any type of uh, genital surgery for changing from male-to-female or female-to-male. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Joel Beck and Dr. Marcy Bowers to discuss surgery for transgender transformation here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Are you ready to go green? 
You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show with your coach, Rick Carrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owner Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein, a board-certified plastic surgeon, and I'm joined by Lisette Lahana, who's a social worker specializing in transgender patients. We've been talking about people deciding that their real identity is actually opposite their born gender identity, and we've been talking about the process leading up to the idea that maybe they want to have surgery to further their, their transformation we're now joined by Dr. Joel Beck, who's a board-certified plastic surgeon, and Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist, both of whom have a specialty in performing surgery for gender transformation. And uh, well, I'd like to welcome Dr. Beck. Dr. Bowers, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you both on the show. You're both certainly experts in this. And we had just been speaking with Lisette Lahana about the requirements of getting the opportunity to have surgery. When someone walks into your office and says, you know, Doc, I've been thinking about doing this for a while and I'm ready for my transformation. These are the things that I want to have. Dr. Beck, you do the facial and chest surgery. Is that right? Yeah, I work on, I do a lot of facial feminization surgery. I work on female to male chest surgery, as well as, uh, you know, body contouring and, um, you know, the main plastic surgery uh, um, field. So, but, um, yeah. And, and so, Dr. Bowers, you are the specialist in the genital surgery as an obstetrician gynecologist. Your specialty is, I, I understand, uh, male to female. Do you also perform female to male surgery? Yes, I do. Yes, uh, uh, increasingly so. Okay, and and when both of you receive a patient, tell me. Let's start with Dr. Beck. Tell me when someone sits down with you and says, "Hey, Dr. Beck, you know, I, I'm thinking about changing my appearance. I want to look more feminine." Is there any requirement you have before you accept a patient for this kind of surgery? 
Well, typically, if a patient comes to me, they've already been through uh, gender therapy for some time. Uh, if somebody's uh, just beginning the, the quest to gain a new identity, then typically I'll refer them to a gender therapist. So uh, it's not, it's, it would be very rare that I would be doing any procedure without some type of further therapy on them. And Dr. Bowers? Although what's interesting is that um, the, the WPATH uh, standards of care don't really put any restrictions on a person having uh, facial or cosmetic surgery, um, but it's, it's mainly, it mainly addresses the genital, the final, uh, the permanent uh, types of procedures, um, breast augmentations and genital surgery. Interesting. So if someone were to come for facial feminization, there's really no guideline as to wanting them to go for therapy, really. It could simply be personal preference, and, and there's, there's no real limitation for the surgeon to accept the patient or not. That's correct. Interesting. Right. Uh, Lisette, do you receive patients on referral from surgeons that have had patients come in without proper therapy? Yes, and usually many times the patients who haven't had any exploration of what gender a gender transition would mean for them are the ones who may be having more challenges emotionally or socially. So it's really good if someone's considering a gender transition to meet with a therapist if they're in the early stages of exploring it um, before seeking out surgeries. Because really surgery is not the most important piece in a gender role change or in a social transition. Um, there's so many pieces that have to go into making a transition that a therapist can help with, and many people come in thinking surgery is it. They'll, they will be a complete woman when they have, or a man when they have uh, genital surgery, but really, unless they've worked on the social transition and the gender role transition first and becoming comfortable in their gender, um, people can have a lot more challenges emotionally and socially. Now that's an I'd excellent like, point like to, to make. Oh, I'm sorry. I'd really like to echo that. That's really an important point uh, for people to understand is that, is that surgery, gen especially genital surgery, doesn't make the person who they feel themselves to be. Eighty percent of transgender persons are never able to uh, go through with genital surgery, mainly for financial reasons, and yet they still are, are viable as uh, the gender they seek themselves to be. And in fact... Um, uh, if they if they put too much weight on surgery as the final outcome, sometimes that is where these disappointments come in. Yeah, and I think that's probably the reason that that Dr. Beck, even though there is no guideline that says that you really should have some counseling prior to facial surgery, I think it's still an important piece. Uh, everything that we're talking about is so critical. Getting your mind right and being emotionally prepared and, and better suited to have surgery. So even for facial surgery, which may not have any suggested limitations, it's still, I would, I would think, an important thing to do before having. I think it's probably why you send patients for therapy before you operate on them, Dr. Beck. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that uh, it's important for people, just as everybody else has been mentioning, uh, to let them know that surgery is one piece of a pie and that there's so many other parts to the feminization or the masculinization process. And that's why it's so nice that there's national meetings across the country that we attend because, you know, there's, there's all the different branches that, are, uh, that add to that being to the whole pie 
so that way a person presents as either uh, male or female, and uh, and we're just one part of that, and uh, it it really helps people's perspectives and ex- uh, expectations. That's that's interesting. You know, we were talking at the beginning of the show that this may be as many, as much as anywhere from one to five percent of the total population of the United States. Now that's still a pretty small segment, but far more than one might believe at, at, at first thought. Now, that may be an increasing population that's presenting for therapy and for surgical changes as society becomes perhaps more accepting and there's more resources. And meetings like what you're talking about, are, these are for professionals, for patients, or both? Uh, they're for uh, both. I mean, it's, it's great for patients because these are a lot of people... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of these people have never even come out to the public yet, and they're very nervous and uh, don't know what to expect, and so they go there to meet other uh, transgender uh, uh, people who give them support. And um, now, now, Dr. Beck, you and I spoke a little bit before the show. There's a large meeting coming up, is it in, uh, you think you said in September. Can you just give us a little information about that? Yeah, so I know Marcy and I, we've uh, lectured there a number of times. It's called the Southern Comfort Conference, and it's in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, September. And I think it's towards the end of September this year. So for those listening, if uh, you have not heard of this conference, it's a great place for you to uh, meet other people, transgender patients, for support. They have a job there. They have different surgeons there where you can go and meet them. Uh, it, there's lots of social activities, there's therapists, there's dress and makeup, and it's like, a, it's a great meeting, and it's great to be able to support that. Can I jump in? Sure, please. It's Lisa Lahana. I also wanted to let your listeners know that there's an amazing conference that happens in Seattle called Gender Odyssey, and so that is primarily focused on the, the trans-masculine, trans-masculine spectrum, people who are female to male transsexuals. Um, and their loved ones, family, friends can also attend, as well as um, me- mental health and health providers sometimes attend. And there's special focus on people of color issues, partners' experiences of um, being with someone who's transsexual or transgender, as well as family experiences. So there's specific workshops. And it's also okay to go if you, are, um, if you identify as male to female transsexual as well. So it's a great... Um, really wonderful um, conference in um, on August, I think fifth through seventh. That's a fan- these are fantastic resources. Anyone listening that may be struggling with their own identity and perhaps hasn't had the opportunity to get this type of information, it's a great collection of people who have this as their specialty in one place, as well as support networks and other people going through this same turmoil that you may be going through at this time. We were talking about the various types of surgery, and let, let's talk a little bit more about that. What types of procedures, when we talk about facial feminization, Dr. Beck, what exactly is being done to someone's face? What makes a man look more like a woman after surgery? Well, I think that what I always preach to patients is to, is to individualize each person and to look at each person as having a certain set of assets. But there are characteristic things that a man has that uh, is different in a female or a woman's uh, skeleton uh, in general. Uh, and, and, you know, a more square type of jaw, more and rod, uh, 
facial features. And so with feminization surgery of the face, what we're doing is we're trying to look at those features that are maybe a little uh, uh, more masculine and, and, and change those and soften those features to be more feminine. And that may be working and often the most feminizing procedure is working on the forehead so that the frontal bossing or the bone, the forehead bone that's more prominent in a man is soft by contouring it uh, um, to a more feminine shape. So, that's so you're, you're, we're actually talking about, so to make clear for the listeners, we're talking about actually reducing the size of the frontal bone of the forehead. The forehead has some fairly prominent bumps right around the eyebrows in, in many men. That is a, quite a masculine feature. And to soften that masculinity, what you're talking about, Dr. Beck, is actually removing that bone and reshaping it and putting it back in so that the contour is softer and smoother and doesn't have those that masculine projection that, that some men will have. Well, that would be like in a more advanced case. Often, most of the time, what you can do, instead of actually removing that bone, you can contour it by just uh, kind of shaving it down a little bit or, or, or building around it. So, you know, unless somebody has significant or what we call like a type 3 forehead, uh, we can we can burrow it down. So that helps with... Uh, post-operative healing time sure. uh, and, and uh, reducing expenses from requiring hardware and things of that sort, which kind of sure. more technical. When, and now having, that you mentioned a square jaw, will you actually reduce the size of the jaw? Yes, I would. I mean, that's in selected cases again. And, you know, when you go to these meetings, and if I'm there, you'll be able to hear kind of uh, my thoughts on, on, on doing too much versus too little and trying to just finesse it so that way each person gets what they want. Um, because, you know, you, there are there are potential sequelae of overdoing somebody's face. So it's sure. important to just, you know, uh, individualize. That's important. Well, of course, you know, everyone's different. But in general, there are certain procedures that will be trends. So we're talking about reducing the size of the forehead, whether you're kind of shaving the bone down or actually remodeling the bone itself. Uh, you also discussed softening the jaw. So if you have a square jaw, I, I'm... I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking about removing the squareness of the jaw, uh, actually shaving off the edges of the jaw. Yeah, what are my thoughts on that? Uh, but, right. I mean, is that is that what you're talking about in terms of things that soften a man into a more of a feminine appearance? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, contouring the jaw is something that... Uh, uh, is done uh, often, and uh, it's just to help narrow it to gain uh, more feminine uh, features. But, you know, if you also look at women, some beautiful women in our country, uh, for example, uh, some very famous people have very square jaws, prominent chins. So, you know, that's why I take into account but, uh, that we don't have to do this all the time, but, but definitely that's one of the things. The jaw is something important to look at, the, the forehead the nose, the relationship between that, the cheek, the upper lip, uh, the Adam's apple is another thing that uh, we can reduce, uh, which is very prominent, more prominent in a, in a male shape, uh, you know, in a man than in a woman. So that's another thing that's very um, prominent. And I know that Marcy uh, uh, works on that too. And uh, actually now Marcy and I both work together since we're practiced out of the same office. So, uh, and we could talk about that. Um, that, that's certainly an advantage when someone's seeking a, a broader transformation. Uh, 
Dr. Bowers, let me ask you about the genital surgery. Obviously, when we're talking about genital surgery, the recommendations, of course, are to have completed all of the uh, the counseling and really be prepared. But let's assume that you're getting patients that are coming that are, are ready to go. Tell us about that transformation. We're talking about actually removing uh, a penis in the case of male to female and you're fashioning a vagina? Well, we really don't. We remove very, very little tissue. You know, it's important to, it's important to understand that the uh, anatomy of males and females is physically identical until halfway through pregnancy. So little boys and little girls are very similar in utero. And uh, uh, as I sometimes, you know, sort of jokingly explain, all the penises is really um, labia that have zip closed, the urethra is fused in the middle, and uh, the ovaries have dropped down into the labia majora and become testicles. I mean, that's really... Uh, the only difference between men and women. Sure, well, and, the em- embryology is really interesting with that, but is that, it does, do you relate that to the surgery? So in the case of female to male, do you actually bring the ovaries down as a testicle, or, do you, or are you putting, obviously you're, you're probably implanting in reverse, taking the testicles and putting them uh, perhaps up into a pocket in the perineum so that they're, they're not in a, a scrotal sac, but... We're still talking about creating a vagina for a male to female, and I I would guess you're creating a penis for a female to male. Yes, that's true. I mean, we, there there are some things we can re, we can uh, reverse embryologically, and and uh, uh, and that that as, that is a an aspect of of how we approach things surgically. But um, but creating a vagina is interesting because uh, to get enough, you know, to get the full amount of the lining. We have to do some uh, some fairly sophisticated plastic surgery techniques, whereby we use a part of the scrotal skin to line some of the the, the uh, deeper portions of the vagina. That's pretty incredible. You, you, so you're you're really salvaging all that tissue. You're not removing very much skin we, or otherwise tissue. That's exactly right. We 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 discard very very little. So. We really try to stamp out that notion that we're, you know, that we're amputating the penis or something. It sounds horrific to do that, but we need all those structures because both men and women have the same sorts of things, and, and those are all important for sexual response after surgery as well. Now, when you're, when you're creating a vagina for a man, is that something that you can actually go on and have sex with? Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, people, you know, one of the one of the major uh, uh, one of life's many pleasures is uh, is is sex, being able to respond sexually and uh, uh, to to have surgery and have uh, sexual expression end would be would be fraught with disappointment. I think so. Uh, these are very very functional um, reproductions once we're finished. It really, that's amazing to be able to make that. I mean, even as a plastic surgeon, and I have never seen one of these operations done. Now, I have seen patients who have had it done, but I've never seen the genital uh, reconstructions done personally. And to me, even as a plastic surgeon, it's a spectacular rearrangement of the tissue because the results are really impressive. At least I've seen a number of uh, male to female, and it, it would, I think, fool anyone. You can certainly live discreetly that way. Well, they're they're incredibly uh, they're they're incredible afterwards. Uh, next time you're in San Francisco, you should see both of us work. Doctor Beck does some incredible work as well. 
uh, you know, the befores and afters are just amazing. I would love to take you up on that. And when I'm in San Francisco, if you're, <clears throat> pardon me, if you're operating, I'm going to take you up on that. Now, when you're going from female to male, the penis that you are able to construct, that's also functional? Very functional. Um, it's small uh, because the, the, the type of procedures that I prefer, uh, called a metoidioplasty, um, they, they rely on, on not adding artificial tissue, in other words, not taking tissue from an arm or from an abdomen, but actually using the, the natal tissue and uh, allowing a person to stand to pee, for example, in, in one of the metoidioplasties, or at least able to, uh, to get erections and uh, to use it for, for sexual intimacy. No kidding. So a reconstructed penis, and I understand in the early years of this type of surgery, that was very difficult to achieve. So you, you can actually construct a penis for a, a female-to-male transsexual that is both sexually functioning to get erections as well as able to urinate through. Well, that's correct. I mean, part of the therapy is testosterone, and testosterone does enlarge the clitoris uh, fairly substantially, somewhere anywhere between 2 and uh, as much as 8 uh, centimeters which uh, in, in, the law, in the larger cases uh, gets into the lower limits of, of the normal male range. And so when you, when you release that from the labia minora and then do some other procedures to kind of round that area up, uh, put uh, silicone testicle implants in, uh, the final results are quite, quite compelling. really is fascinating. Uh, let's, we're going to take a, a short commercial break, and we have uh, a patient. Jane is going to join us. Uh, as soon as we come back, we're going to be right back after this short break here on New Reflections discussing transgender surgery. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. If you need a coronary bypass procedure, you probably want someone you trust and not the biggest bargain in town. You might get more than you bargained for. This is your face and body we're talking about. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust, and you can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation in a multilingual office. That's 305-792-7575. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard and the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. It's all Arizona, all over the world. If you're a local Arizona high school sports fan or if you're a transplanted fan somewhere else in the world, have we got a show for you. The first Internet sports radio talk show focusing solely on high school sports is The Coach's Corner with Scott Lovely. Tune in to talk about your favorite teams, players, or coaches. It's 100% Arizona high school sports coverage and a little bit more. Tune in Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. 
1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Hi, back. We're, welcome back to New Reflections. We've been talking with Lisette Lahana, a social worker specializing in transgender patients. And we have Drs. Joel Beck and Marcy Bowers, who we've just been speaking to about uh, these type of surgeries. And uh, Lisette was actually gracious enough to uh, point a few things out. And, and this is sensitive topics, and I want to apologize to anyone who, uh, if I misspeak, this is new, new territory for me, and I'm personally accepting and certainly have taken care of many patients over the years in, in, in this situation. But if I choose my words indelicately, then I apologize. And, and I don't mean to suggest, apparently I had made the comment of the transgender lifestyle, and of course we all live the same kind of lifestyle no matter who we are. So I, I didn't mean to imply that it was somehow different, and I, I personally don't believe that there's anything uh, aberrant or abnormal about discovering your own identity and finding it's different from the way you were born. So my apologies, and Lisette, thank you for bringing that up during the break. Oh, uh, I want to uh, introduce a patient, Jane from Savannah. Jane, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks to all three doctors for a most informative program. Uh, we're, we're very lucky to have you on the show, and it was with uh, very short notice that, that you agreed to come on, so I, I appreciate it, and I know that you're in a function, so I particularly am, am grateful to have you calling in. We well, have just been fine. talking about... I would love to add um, the experience of my transition journey and how and when I decided I was transgendered and what made me obtain GRS. Well, that's exactly where we're going to go. We've just been talking about the whole process, and that would be my first question to you, is when did you first identify that you had some different ideas about your gender role? Well, um, like most in the trans community, I knew by age five that my fit wasn't right with other boys and society in general. Um, Just not engaging in the same sort of activities, interests, and perspectives about the world. And so even at the age of five, now, was that an issue for you as you went through school as a young child? Um, yes, although I was um, very academically successful and successful in all other areas of life. I was happy. I was engaged in life. Um, but I wanted the cherry on top. I wanted to fully love life and get back to society in a more meaningful, unrestricted way, which matched my soul. So here's an interesting question that we haven't really gotten to on the show yet. Obviously, there's a difference between homosexuality and transgender identity. And did you ever have any confusion as a a young child or a developing adolescent when the hormones began uh, in making that understanding for yourself? No, um, I never considered myself gay. Um, I never had a gay affair, Um, although... Post-surgery, um, I, I fully expect to experience that. I'm only May 3rd with my surgical date. So um, as soon as I'm ready, I, I will engage in what I consider now a heterosexual um, uh, love affair. 
So it, really, it sounds like the difference between a homosexuality and a transgender identity is, is, in the case of transgender, at least in your case, Jane, the you, you've accepted and really uh, immersed yourself in that gender. It's you're not you you, were, you didn't find yourself as a man attracted to men. You've really identified yourself as a woman. Absolutely, emotionally, cerebrally, I was much better matched to being a woman. And I sought surgery when I felt at ease with blending every aspect of my former life into my new future. So and what was it? I, you know, that, I, I feel I very comfortable. It's important really to separate sexuality and gender identity. Hold on. Uh, one second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Dr. Bowers, you wanted to make a point. Go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. Well, it's important to separate sexuality and gender identity. I mean, the, comparing those two things are like comparing ships and sandwiches. You know, other than that, <laughs> okay. other, other than that you eat sandwiches on board a ship, um, they really are quite different. Um, and, and, it's, and it's really important to separate that out. Gender, uh, gender identity is who you are, and sexuality is who you love. Fair enough. And, and it's Lisa Lahana. And what might be confusing for some people is often in the gay or lesbian community, many transgender or transsexual people find comfort in appearing or in being in their, gen their preferred gender role. So that's why some people might be confused because certainly the gay and lesbian community has been um, at times a home for people who are transgender or transsexual to express their gender, um, although it's, it's not, a, not, not perfect in terms of uh, acceptance either. All, all very good points. Now, we're talking about, uh, Jane, your decision to have surgery. You were just mentioning that w when you became fully comfortable with everything, what led to that point? What was it that made you wake up one morning and say, okay, now I'm ready? I had accomplished many of the, the, the goals that I had set for myself in life. Um, I was married for 25 years and had uh, a, a very beautiful and bright child that we raised together. Um, I, I felt an obligation to do that once I had made the commitment. I'm, I'm very um, commitment-oriented, uh, you might say, and that almost trumped everything. It trumped the, the inner uh, soul that I had. Um, so you were, you were I, content to keep that at bay, to keep your inner feelings at bay and on hold to fulfill your, what you felt were your personal family commitments? A higher moral obligation, yes. And sure. then, um, and now, uh, and I understand, you know, it, it's not uncommon for people. I transitioned when I was 58 to um, transition at, at that age or in the 40s. Yeah, we talked about so, at the beginning um, of the show. It seems to be, uh, and, and maybe, uh, Lisette, you can comment about this. It seems to be two populations, sort of a younger population that has their, their identity, they, they feel this, this change of identity in themselves, a difference in identity at an early age, even as, as children and are in a circumstance where they can come out about that, and then another segment of the population that may be more in their 40s and 50s after they've accomplished themselves and, and right. more I, in a place to come out. Yeah, and I think some of it is, is it is so, um, because of social conditioning and de depending on what generation you come from, it can be... Um, it can feel like such a, sh a shock, especially to family members or spouses, to come out as a woman because often they have no idea that a person has been expressing, has been feeling um, like a woman inside um, because 
people need to put on a facade to be often to be accepted, to work, to be in their parent role. So it can take male to female transsexuals at times a, a much longer time to come out, especially in the older generation, because of all those different social pressures and financial pressures, the desire to be able to retire. So often I see um, people, male to female transsexuals at an older age, but more and more I'm seeing young people because there's more, somewhat more acceptance and less discrimination. I'm seeing younger male to female transsexuals and, and um, joining their F2M counterparts because often F2Ms are able to express their masculinity at an earlier age. Um, so there's, sometimes it can be a little bit easier because people have already seen them in a male presentation. Now you've you touched on something when you talk about the financial ability to do it. And Jane, I know at the time that you made your decision, you were more secure and, and more established. It was perhaps more feasible for you at that time in your life. It, how much does this cost? What is the average uh, cost? I should probably ask uh, Dr. Beck or Dr. Bowers, what do you charge on average for various procedures? I guess uh, I would answer that by, you know, it depends on the procedure and, and, the, and the grouping of the procedures and what you're doing all at one time. But, sure. Well, give, so give us a range. I mean, obviously, rhinoplasty is going to be uh, in itself not all that expensive, but if you're looking at uh, your average facial feminization with what you think might be an average cost given the wide variety of patients you see. You know, Dr. Rustin, I guess I would... Uh, I, I, I'm guilty because I let my coordinator take care of that. So I give her the amount of I give her the amount of time it takes me to do a procedure, and then she converts it. So I can't even really uh, answer that. But uh, you know, I could say that uh, if, if anybody's interested out there to get those ideas, please call the office, and, and you know, I could try to figure something out just from how much time it's going to take me. The other thing is, is I know that sometimes some patients the medical insurance covers it. So. Uh, their employment uh, provides some type of medical insurance, and we've had people get their entire transition covered by insurance. And so, Dr. Bowers, uh, if Dr. Beck can't answer that question, could you maybe touch on it? Uh, female male genital surgery uh, in our hands costs uh, between five and fifteen thousand uh, dollars, although elsewhere it can cost up to seventy-five thousand dollars. Yeah, I've seen some outrageous pricing in my research. Uh, yeah, there's some, if you do a phalloplasty, what's called, and go through all the stages that they require for that, it can be quite expensive. Um, for male to female surgery, uh, the cost is 22500 Okay, well, there's a straightforward answer. Uh, and I would probably guess that the facial feminization on whole, looking at a, a broad range of procedures, would be a similar range looking anywhere probably from... 5000 for some of the simpler procedures leading up to a combination that could be as much as twenty or $25,000 uh, for more complex procedures. And, and so, Jane, what was your surgery like? How was your process? Uh, what was the process like? You yeah, what was the process like for you? you know, going to have the procedure and then your recovery afterwards. Um, the, the process um, requires a person to have diligent planning and work in coordination with a very caring medical staff. And um, because it's a very complicated procedure, some of the results are dependent on the patient being responsible for aftercare. For instance, uh, dilation has to be done three times a day for 15 minutes for the first uh, three months. And now you're and, talking about um, dilation because having been uh, male to female, we're talking about making space for the new vagina. 
well, the space, the maintaining the space of the new, new vagina. Okay. Okay. So to maintain its uh, length, elasticity, and general good health, um, that's required three times a day. Now, if you fail in that function and you don't, if you're not responsible, then um, potentially you might develop some problems. And tell me about the actual surgery. I mean, a, a lot of listeners are going to wonder, is it something that you found very painful to go through? No, I found it joyous to go through. Uh, fulfilling a, a lifetime dream uh, mitigates um, any trepidation you have uh, about pain or, or surgical angst. And um, again, the medical staff um, is, is very, very diligent in, in providing clear understanding of the procedure that brings comfort and um, overall very, very positive experience. Recovery so you knew, you knew what to expect and that, that prepared you so you felt like you had a smoother experience. But, you know, at the end of the day, you still had an operation, no matter what the nature of the operation might have been. Did you feel as though, uh, I mean, did you, did you have pain? Were you taking pain pills? Was it something, how long do you think it was after surgery that you really could return to your normal daily activities? Yes, I'm given pain medica- I was given pain medication um, for, for some days after the immediate surgery. Um, and then uh, going home on a long flight home, a 3,000-mile flight, you're required to sit on a, a donut to make things more comfortable in the groin area. Um, it, the rec- you know, you are in some pain. Um, uh, and o- overall recovery, would you say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but we're coming up to the close of the show. I just want to make sure we, we get this, this one bit of information. How long do you think after recovery, would you say two weeks or so, you were pretty much back in the normal uh, life activities? I would say a full recovery for a normal person is in the neighborhood of six to eight weeks, six being the minimum. And like most things, again, in life, um, if you enter into the surgery in good physical condition and you know what you're heading towards, I, I optimize my, my nutrition, I optimize my activity level, and I think I avoided a lot of um, complications as a result. But well, again, I know you had, I know you had a great team and great, a great experience. But let me ask you one last question before we have to go. Was it worth it? What would you tell people that are considering the same thing? <laughs> Examine your heart fully. And when you know it's time, you will know it's time. And, um, and then nothing in the world will stop you. Um, but you must fully, fully examine yourself with the help of mental health professionals to understand your root reason for doing it. And it, it should be a clear one. It shouldn't be frivolous. And it should be um, solidly based in um, a future that brings you utter satisfaction, and that, that's the, the key to uh, being successful. Fantastic. I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Lisette Lahana, social worker specializing in transgender patients, Drs. Joel Beck and Marcy Bowers, both specialists in transgender surgery, and of course, Jane calling in from Savannah, joining us to discuss her experience going through this. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein, your host here, uh, board-certified plastic surgeon, on New Reflections. Join us next week for a new show, again, at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on New Reflections. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time 
You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for new reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend.